Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock or industry. And today we're talking about VeriSign. It's probably one of the most important companies most people haven't heard of. It basically facilitates the plumbing of the internet is maybe a way to describe it. Um, and we're talking with Larry Jamison, also known as Buyback Capital on Twitter. Highly recommend following him. He produces a lot of great research, great content. He also has a Substack, Buyback Capital Substack. Really, he's a good follow all around and a lot of funny material in there as well. So highly recommend it. Um, he knew this business really, really well, and he did a good job explaining it in kind of layman's terms so that we can understand. I mean, at the end of the day, the core business for VeriSign is highly technical, but he did a good job kind of explaining it in simplistic terms. So really recommend uh, listening to the full thing. Lots of lots of fun topics in this discussion. Talked about management as well. Warren Buffett's the largest shareholder, so we get to that later in the episode also. But without further ado, here's our interview with Larry Jamison. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. Today we are joined by now second time guest, Larry Jameson. He also goes by the pseudonym Buyback Capital. If you want great memes, highly recommend checking him out on Twitter. And he also has uh, funny and also uh, good writing on his Substack, Buyback Capital Substack. He goes through a lot of businesses there, but he also kind of adds a little flair of humor in there as well. And we're talking about one of the companies he's written up now before, which is VeriSign today. I guess before we get into things, uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks guys for having me back. It's always great to be on. All right. Let's, I guess, VeriSign is probably one of the most important companies that most people don't know about, I think. So maybe can you give some context about how the domain registration industry actually works? Like like who are the players in it? Where does VeriSign fit in? And then how did they even get the rights to kind of be where they are? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a pretty interesting uh, story about how this even panned out. Like one of the things I always like to say is that like the um, one of the things that's so different from the American uh, economy or businesses that you can invest in is that there are so many of these funny little uh, monopoly type businesses that kind of if you had gone anywhere else in the world they would be run by the government but like in America a lot of them seem to be privatized which is so interesting but they also tend to be really good businesses um, it's and it's a really uh, yeah, secure story. So um, early on in the foundation of the internet, um, a company called Network Solutions, basically over sort of a, 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 a nine or 10 year period, um, was essentially the sole bidder to create the um, domain registry system with uh, the United States Department of Defense. Um, and so in the very, very early days, they did um, registering of the domain names, and they were also the registrar, which is the um, part, of the, part of the setup that um, also sells the names retail directly to the public. And so kind of over time, as the internet got more important from the mid-80s up until the mid-90s, um, they were able to secure the um, do domain registry uh, rights with ICANN, which is the um, it's a non-profit independent body that regulates names and numbers on the internet. And so Network Solution, you know, it got sued a few times by the um, uh, by regulators, 
um, in antitrust cases to break up various parts of its business. So sort of over time, the, do, do, the domain registry and the um, being a registrar, so selling the, uh, the .com and the .net um, names directly to the public, that got broken up and there was brought in competition. And obviously over time, the, the number of domains also got larger. So you've got .com, .net, um, you've got, you know, each country has their own ones. So in Australia, there's .com.au, .org, .io, all kinds of different things. So there was competition brought in on that level as well. Um, now, where VeriSign steps into this equation, they were founded in the mid-90s, so 1995, by a couple of guys who had worked in private equity before. And as best as I can tell, their plan really was to do like a consolidation play on the internet. So they essentially rolled up a ton of different com- of different internet companies. Um, and so in the early 2000s, kind of in the last blow of the um, dot-com bubble, they bought out VeriSign um, in an all-stock deal that was like $21 billion or something like that. So um, uh, VeriSign was just one of the things that they had um, they had rolled up. Um, and um, basically over time, all the other businesses that you bought um, were very subscale or um, went out of business, uh, poor quality, and they, they've been spun out. Um, but essentially, VeriSign ended up with this sort of butt, like in a stroke of good luck. Um, and then, you know, through thick and thin, they've kind of been able to um, keep the domain registry business over time. Now, how that works um, in practice now is that essentially they run the database um, of all the names and they have a service level agreement with um, with ICANN, which basically uh, demands that they have a 100% uptime keeping the .com and the .net um, do- domain names up. So um, that's a pretty high, high level service agreement and they're very, very good at that. Um, and basically the way that a name would make its way to retail is that it would be um, sold on through a registrar. So probably, you know, most people listening to this probably would have registered a, you know, a .com name or a .net name or something like that at some point in time. Um, and you'd buy these through like a GoDaddy or what's becoming more popular today is to buy them through one of the um, the retail website makers. So if you go through like a WordPress or a Squarespace or something like that, they'll also um, sell these as a, as a registrar. And so as part of the fees that you pay to the registrar, um, you know, I think at the moment that, you know, registering the .com, a name is about uh, something in the range of $9. Um, and typically, this hasn't always been the case, but typically the registrars will, um, uh, they will um, pass along some of that cost uh, to the individual purchasing the name. Um, historically, it's been a loss leader for them. So they would actually take a loss on the sale of the name, but they'd kind of make up the money uh, selling website features, right? And anyone who set up a little website will know that it can cost like, you know, even to set up something very basic, it can be you know, $100, $200 straight off the bat. Um, and so over time, I think that, you know, that's been less of a loss leader and they've actually been able to um, add a markup to that as well. Um, that's kind of like the short history and, you know, and um, and how VeriSign, you know, fits into the puzzle at the moment. Yeah. I and mean, it reminds me of the other company we talked about. I can't remember how long ago it was, but FICO, Fairhise Corporation, it seems like a very similar business model as we'll get to it later. Similar margins, extremely high. But that kind of leads me into this next question here, which is their actual business model. What do they actually have to do what do their employees have to do and uh, you know like what what are their what do they have to perform for their customers and do they have any costs because it seems to me like reading it from a high level they just have a license from the government to print money yeah the, that's a, that's a very astute observation they're basically just like a, a toll collector um and kind of the reason for that is like like it's so interesting. They are basically the only privately owned business that um, runs one of the top level domain registries. So um, .com and .net, virtually every other um, domain name is run either by a nonprofit, a government, 
or in some cases, universities. Um, and, you know, for the most part, running the, the top level domain registry um, is not like a commercial enterprise or it's not even really seen as a commercial enterprise. Like here um, with the .com.au um, registry system, it's actually like really difficult to do. Like you have to have a um, specific number, like going through the process of getting a .com.au um, is actually very, very difficult compared to getting a .com, which is ironic because I think it might be the other way around, but they 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 really do do a good job with it. Um, yeah, look, all, all they're basically doing is um, they are reselling the .com and the .net um, domains through essentially resellers, and they are um, that the service that they're providing, uh, like I mentioned before, is just that they keep the um, the domain. Uh, the DNS system up 100% of the time. Now that's um, actually quite a, a a tall order. Like um, as part of my job, we provide like some mission critical um, software to the government and normal SLAs are like 99.99%. Like I think that's what most people will say. So it leaves them, you know, you have some recourse when things go wrong because things inevitably do go wrong. But these guys have done a really good job of keeping the database up and running. And admittedly, they have the most important one, which is the .com. Um, you know, there are, it's something like six or seven times more .com uh, domains registered than, than .nets. Um, so the .com is the most important one. It's the one that everyone coalesces around. Even if you're in a different country, you're going to have a, you're going to want to have a .com um uh, url and so um essentially that they they have the service level agreement with ICANN. um they've done a very good job at that they've built a proprietary um system called atlas so they've, they've had this for quite a while going back into the 2000s which is a very highly scalable system um that has you know virtually never crashed and it it's maintaining hundreds of millions um of these names so that's um it's it's a decent service they provide, but like you mentioned, this doesn't really take a lot of employees or um, uh, even like capital capital expenditures at this point. They've kind of they built the system. Um, every year they kind of shave a few more employees off. Um, so if you look at their FTEs, it's just kind of gradually, gradually, gradually getting lower and lower as they automate virtually all of the business. Um, uh, the, the 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 difficult part, if you will, is that their um, agreement with ICANN sort of comes up for renewal every, I think it's between five and ten years, um, and so you do need some business development people um, on board to kind of keep the uh, the government at bay, um, and um, historically, you know, um, in, you know, management is kind of incentivized towards um, optimizing. Uh, their margins and um, their cash flows. So um, certainly the kind of last 10 years where they've, they've gone from like being a real hodgepodge of different businesses to now where they essentially have really only have two businesses, but in fact only really have one, um, you know, that, that has taken some some management. So you need need someone to keep the, the ship going steady and to make sure they can flick up the prices every couple of years. Yeah, let's talk about that contract what what's baked in there kind of what you mentioned the price increases what's their kind of expected growth rate and then i mean the price increases is probably one element of that but how about the actual like dot com websites registration is is that growing as well yeah so historically the the number of um um dot com uh, registrations has grown about 2% every year. Um, now, the pandemic was a very interesting period of time because, like most things, it kind of uh, rapidly sped up anything to do on the internet. So, you know, when everyone was locked down and they said, you know, you couldn't go anywhere, you know, maybe, and, you know, you're, you're enterprising or you're a bit bored, um, lots and lots of people started a website or an online business. And so the number of domain registrations um, uh, went up in a 
fashion that was very uncommon. So historically, it's just been very, very steady 1% to 2% growth every year. Pandemic sort of sped that up, I think, um, well in excess of 2%. And now on the back end of that, um, we're seeing slowdowns uh, in the number of domain registrations. So um, there was kind of like, I think there was a day where the stock was off like 10, 11%, something like that, three quarters ago where they um, announced a, a slowdown quarter on quarter. And then in the latest quarter, um, most geographies have been pretty good in terms of their volume growth. All geographies want to get a .com registration in tandem with their own local one. Um, but China's been like a real slow, like massive slowdown. Um, and it's not really uh, that clear why that's the case. Um, maybe it's like part nationalism, maybe the, you know, the government somehow throttling people's ability to do that, but China's like a real um, black sheep. I think over the long term, um, uh, it's you know I think they you know that there's plenty of ways that it can be expanded. So I think as time goes on and you know internet technology becomes more and more, the the necessity to be able to you know use subdomains, um, the you know the the advent of you know people like you know um, Substack and stuff like that, who have to register a whole bunch of subdomains for the people who are using different um, specific URLs, all that kind of stuff, and just the internet in general being, you know, a, a good place to do commerce or have a site is. Um, I think people have found that valuable for a long period of time. I can't see it, you know, not, not being valuable going forward. Did they do they get like the nine dollars on every subdomain for? A company like Substack? Um, uh, they might have a slightly different deal, but there are cases where, um, so in, in the company I work for, we build um, websites into subdomains for people. So if it was like, you know, www.brisbane.com.au and they wanted to build like a little, I don't know, a booking page on a subdomain with some tech pasted in it they might register www.booking.brisbane.com.au and you do pay for that um or sometimes it can you know pan out what your deal is with your your registrar so i don't have all the granularity on that but like sometimes yes i, I i'm guessing sometimes no uh, all right. it's, it's definitely not hurting them yeah no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah we'll talk about the incremental margins on this but one risk that I was thinking of that maybe has come up from time to time, I know you mentioned it in your write-up, which again, you can find on the Substack that we'll link in the show notes. It's the mobile risk. I think this was a concern probably in the earlier age of the smartphone, but there was concern that everything was going to go app-based. You, know, you don't have to register a domain there. How um, has that played out? Did it affect anything at all? Yeah, I think um, I think... It's a, it's a little bit asymmetric, right? Because um, like every app needs to, every successful app will also have, basically have a, a website too. So like Threads, you know, like that's only an app at the moment, but they, ha they have to have a website because that's like an on-ramp to get the app. Um, obviously, you know, if you capture a lot of people over time, you know, that could be like less. But I, I mean, the way, the way the Western internet has panned out has not been... Uh, the way that like the Chinese internet has panned out where we, where they, people kind of coalesce around like a super app. Like we don't really have a, you know, a, a, we, a WeChat or Weixin. Um, you know, like the super app is like the, the operating system for the phone. Um, and so, yeah, look, um, I see this in, you know, e-commerce sites that, that we run. Um, mobile is still not as, charismatic a platform for certain types of e-commerce that um, desktop is. So in, in e-commerce sites that I see the back end of, it's like uh, one third um, mobile. And then uh, you have like a big kind of heavy weighting towards desktop because um, people aren't really going to spend like five grand on their mobile phone. I think um, like high yield transactions, that kind of stuff, people are very wary about doing that. Um, on their phone and that's you know partially that's because there haven't been apps built that really like you know 
um, cater to that. But you know, we, we haven't we haven't seen that, and so um, you know, for nine years now, there's been very steady growth in the number of, of URLs, and I think you know, kind of like the app economy works hand in hand with um, um, with with, um, with you know having a, a domain. Yeah, that totally makes sense. What? So they have about 70% EBITDA margins. That's pretty similar to, again, like I mentioned, the uh, FICO business that we talked about. It's extremely high margin, as maybe any listeners can tell when we talked about how there's very little cost. Do you think there's room for this to continue expanding? Because it seems like they just have this small fixed cost base. Employees are going slightly down, but they have this contract where they can continue to raise prices. Yeah, exactly. So it's probably worth, sorry, I think we probably skipped a little bit over the contract. I might just touch on that quickly and then answer. Yeah. Um, the, the the contract with ICANN, so like I mentioned, it comes up for renewal every um, five or 10 years. And basically that contract allows them to raise prices 7% four years out of every six. Um, and so if you average that out, that's about 5.6%. Um, and then, you know, volume growth in in the area of 2%. Um, and so the way that t- contract can be terminated is if um, uh, VeriSign does not keep their end of the bargain in terms of their service level agreement. So if they ever had a like a big uh, outage in their database, that would be cause for ICANN slash the government uh, to terminate the agreement. Basically, every time they come to renew this contract, um, the government or ICANN will use that as a like a leverage point to kind of get concessions out of them. So in the last round of negotiations, the government got them to spend like $25 million on like business development or something. It was kind of like trying to give a few goodies to all the people who complained that their uh, renewal costs for their URL were going up. Like you, you can see how some people would be upset if you're just running a, you know, a hobby site that's about, you know, a blog for your dog or something like that. You can see how the ever-increasing prices might be frustrating, especially if you've been running that website for a long time. Like you might have been paying a couple of dollars or something like that back in the day. And now if the if if your register is like, you know, actually adding a markup, you could be paying, uh, you know, $50, $100 a year kind of thing to, to renew your site. Um, and so, you know, political pressure gets gets brought to bear. So there's been several times in the company's history where um, the government has tried to intervene. And like, we might get to this later, but the, the, the last really significant one was in 2014 when um, the US federal government basically said that they were going to step back from supervising ICANN, which most people saw as a, a way to kind of like break up the existing system. Now, that didn't pan out mostly for the reasons that I've said that VeriSign's built like a very, very, very good system and they provide a very, very good service at what I would say is a low cost, but other people will disagree. Um, in terms of the the margin structure, I think they, they just kind of, um, you know, you won't have dramatic changes um, in the margins. Like the initial, uh, when, when VeriSign was going through its kind of period where it was spinning out, um, you know, underperforming businesses and they had tons of employees and they had, you know, more fixed assets than they needed and they were able to really get rid of those and transition to what they're doing now, which is basically just running the database and raising prices. Um, you had really dramatic changes in the margin levels then because the business was just transitioning to this kind of pricing power-led uh, toll booth, if you will. And um, and so now you'll probably just get very incremental um, you know, drift in the margins upwards, nothing dramatic. I mean, you're already at 70%, probably wouldn't expect anything dramatic, but essentially you're running the same system, um, you know, with fewer people, less costs, they have no marketing costs, virtually no R&D, um, no, almost no capital expenditures. Um, and so those, those should go up steadily over time. And you could probably even go into a period of slight volume um, declines and, you know, pricing power would still push margins um, higher. What do you think about management and kind of their capital allocation strategy thus far? And then kind of a 
it doesn't seem like there's anything that's pointing them in this direction, but what would you think if they started acquiring other businesses and trying to diversify? I know they've been going the other direction, but trying to become more than just the .com and .net registry. I would be horrified. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a really good question. Um, Like, um, so the management's interesting. So the company at the moment is led by the co-founder of Verisign back in 1995, a gentleman called James Bidzos. Um, Now, he's had an interesting history with the company. Like, he sort of co-founded it. He stepped back. He was kind of... Um, you know, like uh, not a top executive, but kind of leading business development, which is quite often, you know, these entrepreneurs who start things, they want to be, you know, out in the field. They don't want to be dealing with HR issues. Um, and so he's kind of, you know, been with the company, stepped back from the company. Um, and then, you know, in 2008, he came back, he became chairman. Um, he became interim CEO. He installed a couple of protégés. Um, one of his protégés left and then he took on the full CEO role and he's kind of been doing that for 15 or so years now. Um, uh, The the company just had so many problems with their dot-com acquisitions. Almost every business they've ever gone into, purchased, uh, some of the ones they've run have been really mediocre. Even now, they still run the SSL certificate business. Um, which is kind of like a you know a stamp of security on the internet. Not every website needs to have one. Even that um, was a mediocre business because um, you know competition eventually got introduced to all these things. So out of all these things they've done, and if you can go back and you know tens of billions of dollars of acquisitions, and you know they did identity, they did cybersecurity, you name it, all kinds of things trying to get a lock on a piece of the internet that would actually stick and have durability. And, um, you know, basically none of it panned out. It's just this one acquisition they ended up doing at the very top of the dot-com bubble um, that actually turned out to be a value accretive. And so a lot of the management churn that happened in the late 2000s before Bidzos came back full-time was essentially, um, you know, executives having trouble with um, laying off parts of of the business, executing the plan that they had after the dot-com bubble, which was essentially to divest um, themselves. So, you know, they've had a terrible history of um, M&A, except for one. So they did one really, really good piece of M&A um, and many, many billions of dollars of value um, destruction. If they started to do M&A again, which I don't think they would do because they have what I call the like the gold standard of um, management remuneration, which is basically all the short-term and long-term um, incentive agreements that uh, senior management has is tied to operating margin expansion. So like unless, and as you guys will know, the operating margins are extremely high. So unless they were actually able to find something that had like 50% EBIT, EBIT margins that will expand, um, they're going to get less money. So they they will they will they would be negatively incentivized to do something like that. Of course, Bidzos, you know, he's executive chairman and CEO and a significant shareholder. So if he like had a you know a crisis of faith in the latter part of his executive career and then just decided to get the board to change remuneration structure, I think that would be like a huge red flag, and a massive mistake for the company. But um, you know, in the in the Bidzos era where Management was incentivized, and you go back and read the, te- uh, the the proxies. But basically, they're incentivized to throw off everything that doesn't make cash, and they were incentivized to, um, you know, have the uh, have you know, on on the direction of operating margins. And so that basically just got them to Verisign, got them to the pricing power model that they have now, and focusing very clearly on that. Essentially, all the incremental free cash flow, and there's a lot of it. Um, they plowed 100% of that into buybacks which is a very rational policy. Um, and uh, they've been very adept at that. So they're very good at playing the um, uh, levering up when it makes sense to repurchase shares. So you go back and have a look at a history of how many shares they're repurchasing. Literally every time the shares dip, they borrow more money to, to repurchase the shares. Um, and that's been a really, really successful, um, really successful model for them. You would think that a company that had like you know two percent volume growth, 
five and a half percent pricing growth, you know, that would be like a, you know, a 10% grower or something like that. It, you know, EPS has grown far in excess of that because they've been able to juice the returns with, um, you know, well-planned buybacks. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the shares outstanding chart, it's quite consistent. Um, you, you always like to see that. I mean, it's just much, much better than those acquisitions. And as you mentioned, it seems like they have very strong incentives that are aligned with the management team. I do want to talk more specifically about the valuation, though. You wrote about this in your write-up. You kind of did some estimates around, you know, what is the share price expectations right now? Kind of go through some of those numbers. What multiple do you think, and you can choose whatever multiple you want, I guess. What multiple do you think this would be a compelling investment? And what's your reason? Yeah. Um, so, look the 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 quick algorithm for like the total stock return for these kind of companies is just like you know volume growth plus or minus um, pricing, um, you know, plus or minus buybacks plus or minus the leverage that they use um, uh, to repurchase more shares. And so, like the last fifteen years, that's been like a uh, low teens, um, you know, EPS grower, you know, mid, mid teens to sometimes 20%, depending on the year. Um, I think going forward, it's probably fair to say that, um, you know, you get like a low teens, you know, this is a low teens EPS grower. Um, if you keep those assumptions in place, they'll be able to you know, borrow money to repurchase the shares, which will juice the, you know, the, the main algorithm. Um, the thing that uh, I get concerned with just on that level is that from time to time, the US government has put pressure on the company for them to stop price increases. So there was significant pressure in 2020 for them to stop doing that. There was the last time this happened, the Obama administration influenced the company to stop uh, the, the allowed, so the agreed pricing increases. And I think that was during the 2014, 2015 time period. Um, and then you had periods of time where the company, for one reason or another, didn't raise prices. So before Bidzos came back, the company just had not raised prices on the dot-com names for a number of years for reasons that are still unexplained. Um, so I think there's like, you kind of have to underwrite a little bit of that, that you may have a period in time where the company one reason or another does not raise prices if, if that's political or, um, you know, for, for an external reason. I think that's less likely now than it is in the past just because of, you know, how management's incentivized and the culture of where things are. But I don't really see the, you know, the primacy of the .com um, domain, you know, going out of favour. You know, I don't see the, you know, mobile being a significant headwind to this. I think what's happening in China is very interesting and that has really dampened, um, you know, some demand for it. So I think you can still kind of stick to the, you know, the the 2% kind of growth. Maybe that's, you know, being optimistic and the price and growth, but you kind of want to leave a margin of safety there, something like that. Um, I think for a business that, you know, takes no incremental capital, and can produce more earnings, I think you should be willing to pay up for something like that, um, especially when you get all the money back in buybacks or you get uh, more than 100% of the free cash flow back because they um, lever up to repurchase shares. Um, so, you know, in that write-up, I think I said something like a high teens, uh, you know, trailing multiple. Um, in the past, you've been able to get this for like 10 times earnings, 11, 12 times earnings which is like an outrageous bargain. Um, so I think somewhere in the middle there, obviously interest rates would affect this. Um, so if we had a, a period of sustained interest rates above 6%, I think you'd, you'd want you'd want an appreciably lower multiple than, than like 16 or 17%. I think in the write-up I said like a 6 or 7% earnings yield would be great, you know, Somewhere between there and you know twenty times earning a five percent earnings yield, that gets you to like a mid teens IRR. Um, 
I think, you know, it's just not as attractive these days because the multiple's always so high <laughs> because everyone knows how good it is. It's obvious how good it is. It's not like all the margins and the business profile was obscured by, you know, other nonsense going on and then they were able to kind of, you know, break out of that. Um, but I think something like that is is fine and, you know, you do perfectly well. All right, let me run a scenario by you. Let's say a bunch of dot-coms are down for like an hour and it's like this like widespread internet outage and verisign's kind of the culprit does that is that cause for concern for you because in that scenario maybe the contract is up for bid next time renewal comes around but am i thinking about the writer where there probably be some leeway yeah i uh, yeah it's a really good point i um so yeah, so the service level agreements are one hundred percent uptime, and they have basically never failed on that to their great credit. So they do like a really, really good job of that. Um, if they uh, fail on that, so that's an opening for the government to not renew. Um, and I think that's a just a really political question. Like if that had happened in twenty fourteen when a lot of um, the controversies were going on, I think like maybe a killer, <laughs> maybe maybe that's like a death shot. I think at the moment, this is like not a very controversial issue. Uh, the last renewal kind of went through um, pretty seamlessly. And they have this proprietary system called Atlas, which like, no, you know, no one has ever built anything like this. It would be a significant project to just replicate all of this for nothing. So I think probably in an instance like that, um, the government might look to like alter the terms of the agreement. So maybe they might, uh, you know, get them to either spend more money structurally. So last time they convinced them to spend, you know, like 20, 30 million bucks on, you know, some nonsense. Um, and, or they, they might come for the pricing. They might say, well, you know, you're only going to get 3% a year or something like that. And obviously all of those outcomes, um, the first, outcome would not be bad you know, a few million bucks here and there like that's not a big deal for a company that you know will probably make you know, a billion and ebit a couple of years out um and uh in the second case if they came for pricing that would be you know that that's going to change the whole um your whole valuation algorithm so not a killer in a highly politicized environment you know which is not unlike you know happened before it can happen again yeah it could be a complete killer but i think that's probably unlikely given um, given the technology they've built. Um, and I think they've done a good job of explaining that to the government. Okay. Let's say the contract, which the next one's coming up for renewal in what, like two years? Am I thinking of maybe, maybe it was a little longer, but let's say it is renewed. Is there any chance that the new terms give them better price increases? <laughs> Um, I think that's extraordinarily unlikely. Um, so, so basically, uh, the way the agreement works, or my understanding of it, is that that you can assume renewal given there isn't a material breach of the contract on either party's side. Um, so, really, the only person who would want to um, uh, not continue with the contract would be the government. I believe Verisign, under almost all circumstances, would want to continue um, with the contract, and I can't see many scenarios where the government or ICANN uh, breaches their agreement and that leads to significant leverage for Verisign to negotiate higher pricing. Um, um, Yeah, I can't really think of any scenarios in which, you know, the government would would kind of say yes to that um, even, you know, even if let's say the the desirability of the dot-com and the dot-net registries went into like complete reverse and, you know, volumes are declining 10, 20% a year, something like that. Um, I think the government would still kind of just be like, oh, well, this is your problem. You know, you deal with it, you know, type type thing. So, yeah, I think um, the the catalyst for pricing would kind of be like if the gov- a way I think about it is like if the government allowed them to negotiate directly with comp- like with big companies, right? So if you had like, you know, 10, you know, had a billion in revenue or something like that, and they would say, oh, under that case, you can go directly to the company and negotiate. Um, you know, I'd be very interested to know what Google would pay for their .com registry. Like, 
like there was that story years and years ago where some kid like got a hold of um, Yahoo's registry, like they forgot to renew it, and some kid got in there and he um, he registered it for himself, and they had to pay him hundreds of thousands of dollars to get it back. Um, I remember the Good for the kid, yeah, the second or the aftermarket in the early days of the internet boom. I believe McDonald's.com. Someone, I think that was over a million dollars paid. So yeah, I mean, privately, this would be could be even a better business, honestly. <laughs> Why do you think Buffett was attracted to this business? He still owns a sizable percentage of the no, shares, number one right? shareholder. Yeah, number one shareholder. Yeah. What do you think attracted yeah. him to it? Um. Yeah, it's funny. Is like he like every time you find something that's really interesting, like he's always on the registry. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like you know, the old man always gets there first. Um, you know, I I think several times in his career he's been attracted uh, to these types of businesses. So he was the um, there's a company called Verisk Analytics, which you know is kind of an analogous business in the insurance uh, industry, and. He, uh, that, that was a collective, so it was owned by all the large uh, property casualty insurers and, and some other insurance companies. He was the only person to keep a hold of his stock after it IPO'd. Um, and he, you know, really likes, you know, he, he, you know, he says it infinitum that he likes businesses that uh, can produce more capital without any more incremental capital being spent. And that's exactly what this is. The other thing that he likes to do is he, you know, he likes value with a catalyst in these quality names. So I speak about what he's doing. This isn't like, you know, net nets or anything. This is kind of his career at Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, in situations like um, um, in like the Washington Post or Coca-Cola or, you know, Fannie Mae, um, you know, even, you know, things like Apple, he likes uh, these really good businesses when they're in transition in between, you know, they're, they're transitioning from a period of mismanagement or the capital allocation's been bad or for one reason or another, you know, margins and, and cash flow are going to inflect and obviously make the business more valuable, hence being a value investor. And so I think that's exactly what he saw in 2014. There was, at that point, there was, you know, six or seven years where the company had had a strategy of um, rolling back their subscale and sub-quality business lines. Um, they've been moving to a rational capital allocation policy and they had been, you know, dramatically reducing their cost structures. And, like, those are all, uh, you know, really good things for the continuing shareholder, especially when you have this, you know, super high margin, decent growing business that doesn't require any more capital, just keeps throwing off more through pricing every year. Um, and so I think he saw that. I think... You know, 2014 was the year when the when the company had you know several problems with the government. So the government was um, bringing pressure for them to stop raising prices. The government was also threatening to um, change the nature of um, how the .dot com and the .dot net registries were going to be managed going forward. And so there was a lot of doubt, uncertainty um, about you know what was going to happen with the company. And at the same time, the whole financial model of the company was changing into what it is today. And, you know, the I think, you know, I've gone back and had a look, I think on a forward basis, you know, you're kind of getting this for like a low teens forward multiple um, in an environment where like interest rates were, you know, approaching zero. And so, yeah, I it was like, you know, it's been a really successful investment for him. Um, like the bull, bull, bull case basically played out. Um, and I think it's, you know, right. That's all, all those things are right in his uh, playbook. All right. Let's wrap things up with a, well, this is a fun one, but we also want to make sure we cover the risks of the business. So in your write-up, which again, if anyone's interested, will be in the show notes. You gave yourself kind of a rhetorical self-question. It's like, so why don't I take out a second mortgage and this is a paraphrase, put my entire net worth <laughs> into calls of this company? To put it another way, why, what are the risks here? What's keeping you from investing today? I know maybe, you know, we talked about valuation being a bit aggressive here, or excuse me, the multiple being a bit aggressive. So maybe besides that, what's keeping you away from this? What's keeping it from being a position like FICO, which as we discussed before is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a core position in your portfolio. 
No, no, that's completely right. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, personally, I like to force rank my portfolio on uh, quality, not necessarily on price. I think price is really important to, if you're going to buy something, you want to, you know, a low price, which allows, you know, a margin of safety and high returns and all that good stuff. Um, uh, if I were to compare this company to like FICO, FICO has unregulated pricing. So they can they can and they do raise prices well in excess of five and a half percent every year. So there's like a news article going around that, and this is apparently true now, where they've raised um, the prices of some scores on on smaller financial institutions like 400% this year. And so, you know, that's like a 395% delta um, between them. And so the, the fact that these guys, you know, if they had unregulated pricing or they were able, you know, they were able to do the scenario um, that we talked about before where they were able to go to Google and like hold a gun to their head and say, hey, um, how about you give me a billion dollars for Google.com? Um, I think that would be like a, you know, that would be wonderful. You could own that at like any price, right? Um, because you know un, unregulated and aggressive pricing, and so uh, these guys they don't they don't have that. They have a you know it's a very decent and good business, and um, you know at like thirty times trailing, you know thirty times forward. I think you, you're probably looking at something at like a market return, and so you know price would be my first. Uh, you know pricing of this business at its current trajectory would be my first. Uh, reason why I wouldn't want to own it, especially when I compare it against the other things that I own. Um, and then secondly, um, you know, I think, you know, historically, this is uh, one of those companies and FICO goes through this and like all the other kind of, you know, quasi government monopolies go through this. They go through a period of, you know, um, political interference and controversy and that kind of thing. And those can, um, like, that's going to happen. I think you can basically underwrite that is going to happen at some point. At some point, there will be uh, the government will try to leverage, um, you know, their bargaining position against the company or, you know, general political pressure we brought to bear. Um, and that and that would be like a headwind. And so, I, you know, typically when people have done well in this is when they bought it, when, you know, there's been uncertainty and, you know, the company had for one reason or another had not been raising prices. And so I don't like to buy things that are like, you know, peak multiple on peak earnings. I like where you can probably have a bit of a, you know, catalyst for them to return. And you, you might, you, or you might not, it might just keep chugging along. I don't know, but um, I'm, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather buy it when, um, you know, there's some uncertainty. Okay. I have one more question before we conclude. It's sounds, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, but it sounds a little boring in terms of it's a very simple model and growth is probably pretty easy to calculate. Is there anything I guess if you were in the CEO chair, is there anything you'd do differently? Is there anything you'd want to see them do to maybe spur growth a little bit or, or would you change anything? You know, probably not. <laughs> um, um, like there's not really much, yeah, like just like you say, like there's just, there's not a lot that they really can do. Um, you know, they keep the system running and they enact the price increases um, at the intervals that they're allowed. Um, and yeah, they, they, they do a good job at that. I think, um, you know, like we said before, I'd be like horrified if they went and did a lot of M&A. Um, I think one of the advantages, some of these other, you know, businesses of its ilk, like, you know, like a, a FICO or a Verisk, um, or even Moody's, something like that. They, because they have like a, you know, it's kind of like a proprietary data type business. They've been able to take that and they've been able to roll it off into software offerings, um, which are, you know, um, they enjoy a lot of the same features as the core business. Um, if these guys tried to do that, I'm not sure they have any proprietary data. You know, they've, they've only got like, you know, the, their domain names. Um, so I'm not sure how they would roll that into like, you know, a, a capital light service offering that might be something that's interesting if they have someone again i, I hate to say it but i if they started doing a lot of biz dev and stuff like that i'd get really nervous um just because the core business is so good you know and you, if you take the you know if you take high returns and you put them into 
something where you don't know what the return probability is going to be, you know, that's usually a bad equation. What do you think the odds it, are the the dot IOs of the world start to make a comeback against the dot coms? Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's not well, dot AI dot AI. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. Right. Well, you, 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 and you don't know what the next one is, right? So there might be like, you know, there might be a really charismatic, you know, new modality either of you know money or whatever, you know, that might capture a lot of people's imagination. And um, yeah, I think you know you can't can't necessarily underwrite that. I think you know the 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 way to think about it is that like every additional you know dot AI or dot IO or you know, whatever it is, um, that's usually a um, a catalyst for that person to also register a dot com. Um, so. Uh, these standards, you know, that people kind of like, you know, gravitate towards, um, they still confer like legitimacy. So like still being trust, you know, being trusted on the internet's a big thing. And if you're just a .ai or .io, whatever, there is always going to be some portion of the population who's not going to trust you. Like, you know, this sounds scammy or whatever. And if they can go to a .com, it makes them, you know, oh, these guys, you know, they're, they're being regulated by the US government. Um and so, you know, I think, you know, at the margins, you know, probably the diversity of domains is a net benefit for the dot-coms. All right. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. For people that want to keep up with you, read more of your work, what are the best places to do that? Uh, yeah, you can find me on um, Twitter, um, at Larry Jamison, and yeah, on the Substack as well. So buyback capital uh, on Substack, um, try to put out a piece every week. Um, but yeah, links to that will be in the show notes. So for anyone spelling, you know, it'll be easy. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it. We want to throw a disclosure on this. We should remind listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Larry, for joining us again. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you.